Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. busy show ahead of us tonight. I don't know where you were over the weekend and what the wind was like, but I can tell you right here in Dublin, my goodness, I was almost blown off my feet. Speeds of up to 70, 80, 90 kilometres per hour. And I was thinking, what about the birds? Can they fly in this weather? What about the nests that some have already built or the ones that have been there since last year, if they decide to use them again? You know, they're not nesting right now. Well, some are. We're about to find out shortly. Joining me in studio tonight, Terry Flanagan, Niall Hatch and Dane and Ilana, and at his home in Malahide, Dr. Richard Collins. But Amy, your mouth is wide open. You're aghast. <laughs> well, yes, because open. it was 130 kilometres. Was it? You in your 70s. Your 70s a gentle zephyr. <laughs> I mean, this was strong <laughs> <wrong> stuff. <laughs> anyway, what about the birds? So, in my back garden, I noticed that there were two nests on the trees just over the perimeter wall. I back onto the airfield trust up in Dundrum, and they were blowing mad in the wind. I'll put the video online. You can have a look. At it. And it got me thinking, how do those nests stay there in such strong winds? Nile Hatch. Well, nests are amazing. The, the construction that goes into them is truly remarkable and the job that birds just do instinctively when they're building them is, is absolutely amazing. Now, luckily for the vast majority of our birds, they're not nesting at the moment, uh, so they don't actually need those nests because sometimes people think that birds live in nests and a nest is a bird's house. Not at all. It's just where they raise their chicks. They lay their eggs, incubate them, raise their chicks for a few weeks and then the nest generally isn't used again until the following year if it's used at all because in many cases they, they won't be. So luckily, most birds have evolved to nest during the time of year which when we're least likely to have storms. So it tends to be late spring through into the early summer. doesn't mean you won't have storms and the weather's becoming more unsettled in Ireland. Climate change is definitely having repercussions for the birds. But those nests up in the trees, even though they might have been blowing all over the place, the birds won't have minded, they won't have even noticed. But despite that, in the video that you sent me there, Derek, you can still see that despite the wind, those nests are clinging on because they've actually been woven into the branches of the tree. They're very, very secure. We do have some birds that do nest at this time of year. So members of the pigeon family, so particularly the uh, the wood pigeon and the collared dove. I was listening to Terry's documentary there recently about pigeons and uh, about their nesting. Pigeon nests are often very flimsy affairs as well. So people may have found actually some pigeon nests may have blown down and it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that some may have had eggs in them at this time of year already. So let's hope that didn't happen too much. Pigeons can nest at any time of the year apparently because they're one of the few birds that do not need insects. They feed their young on a cheesy thing that's in their chest so they're, they're vegetarian birds entirely. A lot of the vegetarian birds like finches turn to eating insects to feed their young and feed them with insects but, but not the pigeons. So they're not dependent on leaves and creepy crawlies the way all the other birds do. So they can nest at any time of the year and they seem to be total goofs at doing nests. I mean in our, in our tree in the back garden it, we found an egg on the ground because it had fallen out of the elder tree and this was in the summertime so you know they're not too not too well up in the head for making nests are they? And, and do spare a thought for those birds that do depend on insects because imagine over the last 48 hours or so or longer how hard it must have been for those mm. birds to find insects so our little dunnocks our little wrens around the garden they really do need help the way you help them is by planning in advance having native plants there that provide cover for those insects where they can shelter and then therefore the birds can feed as well uh, luckily the temperatures have increased so if we had a big storm coupled with very cold weather that'll be even worse but the storm did seem to bring warmer conditions so swings and roundabouts the birds would have benefited from that to some degree Well they weren't out flying in it though were they? Luckily it isn't the time of year when birds are migrating so if you can imagine if uh, Never mind the migrators I'm just talking about the common garden birds that we're going to be featuring on the programme in a couple of weeks time I didn't notice any of them out in the last couple of days They would be keeping a low profile that's that's true now of course they have to fly to find food and if you're um, a berry eating birds at the moment we have quite a lot of birds called waxwing in Ireland, a very flamboyant uh, pinkish bird with a crest on its head. They feed on berries and they tend to strip the berry trees very rapidly because they eat three times their own weight in berries every day. So when those berries are depleted, those birds have to fly en masse to the, the next group of berries they can find. And if you have prolonged periods of wind for several days of strong wind, some of those may come a cropper because it's very hard for them to find that food. Whereas birds like blackbirds, they tend to do a lot better because they're, they'll, they'll probe in the ground for worms if they can find them. They'll manage to bid your garden but they'll come to bird tables they have a wider diet and birds like crows tend to thrive because they'll they'll, they'll feed on all the stuff that died they'll go for roadkill they'll go for things that have blown down anything they can find so their intelligence really helps them survive but it's different 
d- different effects on different birds. You mentioned crows. The ravens are early nesters as well, are they not? They are. So, yeah, ravens will be nesting around now. They nest sort of building nests in January into February. So, yeah, that, that they could be affected. And they I was often... in the Natural History Museum yesterday and there is the largest stuffed raven I've ever seen in my life in there. Oh, they're huge birds, yes. And I think a lot of people, I think people sometimes mistake um, rooks for ravens. I think ravens are coming into their back gardens. And well, they you never mistake it when you see them side by side. They're enormous, absolutely. <laughs> the biggest songbird in the world. Um, so they're huge. The raven Bigger is than... a songbird? It is a songbird. It's a member of the passerine um, order of birds. Half of all birds in the world are, and of all of them, it is the largest. Uh, bigger than a buzzard. So you're talking, you know, some birds of prey are smaller than them in Ireland. So yeah, yeah, and of course, the song that they sing is not like the other ones to go caw, caw. It's a croaky sound. It's nearly like a, like a pig grunting or something because you hear them up in the mountains when I go hill walking. Mm. You might necessarily see them, but you hear this croak. You know the thing, a raven can croak and we all tumble down, bumpity, bumpity, bump. You know the thing, you know. <laughs> it was one of these things. But the raven went croak and croak was, was, was the sound that the raven makes. So it's not a caw like you might expect other things in the crow family to be doing or, or magpie sound or jay sound it's really distinctive but it is a song Derek it's a song it's well, everything yeah. is, is beautiful to the ear that's hearing it isn't it anyway you mentioned berries and birds having yes. to fly out and get berries and we did have an email recently from a listener wondering why there were more holly berries up high than there were down low and I was suggesting that perhaps there are fewer birds up high than there are down low and fewer criminally minded people going around <laughs> wrecking the place and stealing all the holly for the Christmas period. Am I right or wrong? What's the answer to that? That may be part of it. Certainly, obviously, if, if people are picking the branches with berries and they're high up, it's much harder to get to them. But also, you have to bear in mind that berries will ripen at different rates and the birds are very good at detecting when those berries are at peak ripeness. So they'll leave them, unless they're absolutely starving, they'll leave them until they have the peak amount of sugar. And they can tell that by judging the the, the shade of red that the berry is. And the, the eye of a bird, like a blackbird or a waxwing, that rely on these berries, they can d- distinguish between different shades of red 40 times better than the human eye. And that red is a signal from the holly that the berry is now at peak ripeness, time to be eaten. Because, of course, that holly wants its berries to be eaten by a bird, insofar as a plant can want anything. Evolution has provided it this way because that's how they're propagated. So sometimes people contact us in Birdwatch Ireland or in Mooney Goes Wild and say, it's terrible. They, they, these birds are coming in, they're stripping off all the holly berries, they're, they're ruining the garden. But of course, they're, they're damaging the tree. But of course, that's the way it's supposed to be because that's how they spread. I want to ask you a question Derek you said high up or low down do you mean high up on a particular tree no, or no, do you no. mean high up on the mountains on, a, on I mean, high you're ground to be specific. on high yeah, ground yeah. on high ground up the mountains yeah, yeah. because because I mean, we have trees locally with, and the berries are gone from the top of the tree first before the bottom of the tree so I was going to say you're wrong but you're not wrong because you were actually talking about high ground yeah, I was looking at that email but it's only from Mill Mountain Drogheda which is 200 metres so <laughs> it's not exactly the top of Karen <laughs> Thule to be fair I mean birds can fly people live up in Mill Mountain no I know there, there, are many birds. there are fewer birds on higher ground, let's be honest about it. It's just well, on really, high, on really high ground indeed. But I mean, you know, mistle thrushes in particular are very fond of it. But you must, we have to realise that, that um, you know, berries are less intense food than insects and creepy crawlies and stuff. So they only go to the berries when they can't get the insects and the creepy crawlies. So it tends to be later in the year when they eat them. So they are around at the moment. Richard, you're very quiet out there in Malahide. Yes, Derek, I am. And listening to this fascinating material about why aren't the berries high up on the tree? Well, remember, berries are trying to advertise the wonderful succulent delights they're offering the birds. That's what the tree wants. So it we up there where you are noticed. That might be it. Uh, Bertrand Russell once quipped that in the exam to get into heaven, there were 10 questions. But he said, you need only attempt six. <laughs> now... In the case of the birds, they ignore questions about bribery and corruption and deception and everything like that. And so do the trees. They are partners in crime, the pair of them. In other words, the tree has a problem. It has berries, the seeds, they will fall to the ground. But the tree doesn't want them falling to the ground just under it because that's its own patch and they won't get much nutrients the tree is taking at all. They want those seeds taken far away from the tree where they will fall on a fresh ground and prosper out there. The birds have a similar problem. They want to fatten up, coming up to form eggs and to raise their young. So the tree obliges. It obliges by providing fruit, nice fruity things like the berries that you're talking about. The bird gets lots of nutrient and the bird is an ideal, an ideal carrier because it doesn't have teeth. So it doesn't break the seed 
and it has to get the stuff out of its body fast because it's a flying energy is being wasted flying around so it's got to the food goes through it fairly quickly and the seed emerges with a nice lump of fertilizer around it and the seed is intact and it emerged and it is deposited a long way from the tree so the bird is a courier and the tree is a nutrient provider and it is a marvelous uh, symbiotic relationship that they have there um, now of course you have to bribe the birds into eating the, the berries so you can make them red, red is usually the color why? Well, if you look at uh, a nestling, usually the mother's gape is red. Mm -hmm. We're very much influenced by what happens to us in early childhood, as Freud pointed out. Now, the gape of a bird is red. That is a great trigger to a baby bird. That there's, and when it gets old, it still likes the bit of red. And of course, red is very conspicuous. Some seeds are yellow. There's a theory that... This might be more visible in the early morning, a pale yellowy thing. By and large, we're in the world of advertising, of promotion and that sort of thing. Now, of course, there are other little refinements. Remember the jay. The jay comes along and he is has to load up with his caches, have to be loaded with seeds in the autumn, acorns in particular. So he takes acorns, thousands of them, huge and prodigious numbers of acorns, and buries them. And of course, he doesn't remember them all, although he remembers an awful lot of the locations, he doesn't remember all of them. And that helps to disperse the seeds of the trees as well. So here we have mm -hmm. a wonderful relationship between the two. Anyway, those are the thoughts that occurred to me. They are your thoughts. Now, and we happen to have a Jay expert in the studio right now, Terry Flanagan. Terry Flanagan, you did a lot of work on Jays back in the day, did you not? Explain what they are, first of all, well, and what they look like. Certainly not an expert. But yes, I spent a lot of time working with Jays back in the, in the early 1980s, believe it or not. Jays are crows, and... When people see a jay, they say, that's not a crow. A crow is a blackboard or maybe it might be black and white if it was a magpie. Well, think of a magpie, that shape, except put loads of pinks into it and put blues into it and put a lovely crest on the top of it. And that's what a, a jay looks like. Now, they're a woodland bird. They're quite difficult to see because you're not going to see them. They, they rarely come into gardens, although I think in the last couple of years they have been coming into gardens that little bit more often and they do cash food in the autumn time. So if you're going looking for jays, probably the best time of the year to see jays would be in the autumn time and in woodland, particularly uh, an oak woodland, particularly if there's a, a a good supply of uh, acorns in that particular year. They collect these acorns they take maybe six, seven, eight acorns, they fill them into their mouth and then they go off and they bury the acorns. And they bury them in specific spots around the woodland and even outside of the woodland. I've seen them bury them in the most ridiculous places. And then they come back during the winter time and they feed on these. They use them to, 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 for nourishment during the winter. And even up to the following uh, summertime where they will take some of these acorns that have actually sprouted and take them and use them as food for the nest in the nest. But then they don't always remember where they leave them. So you'll get little small oak trees, saplings growing in the most unusual places. I remember when I was doing that research back in the 80s, finding small oak trees, little saplings growing in places like a beautiful apple orchard. And there wasn't an oak tree within 100 metres of it, maybe 200 metres of it. So obviously that tree was growing from a seed that was planted by a jay. So they're a most beautiful bird and it's lovely to see them coming into people's gardens and people often say to me, I saw this really unusual bird in the garden and uh, it, it was a foreign bird. It had escaped from somewhere, got away from the zoo or that. I said, no, it's not a jay. It's a jay, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show that if we didn't have so many deer eating the saplings, the work of jays and squirrels and mice and all of these creatures that depend both on nuts and on, on berries would revegetate the country with trees very quickly, only that we have this excess amount of grazers. Indeed sheep and goats are just as bad but deer in particular are eating all of these saplings and stopping regeneration happening, which is such a pity really. And going back there to that, the importance of the jay as well, because people think that squirrels, grey squirrels will collect these 
acorns and they will plant them and that if they forget where they plant them that they will grow into oak trees they don't when the grey squirrel collects them he bites out the growing tip of it so whatever seeds are planted by a grey squirrel they will not actually grow into saplings so it makes it more important when we look upon the jay and the importance of the jay in spreading woodlands yeah and birds in general as Richard was saying Mm. you were making the point Richard that birds don't have teeth so the seed passes through Indeed, they do. It goes right through them right away. There is a dark side to this that I didn't mention, of course. Trees are the great poisoners. They deter. And if you eat the wrong berry, you will suffer that night uh, and you might even die. So they're careful to put toxins in that tr- that hit the wrong kind of... They don't like mammals eating their food because the mammals will crunch and damage the seeds. So they tend to be poisonous to me. Yew trees, for instance, are famously very poisonous and so forth. So poison is a mem- another weapon in in. in in this armory and that's very important too. Things like caterpillars for instance, they feed on the leaves of trees and the trees like to poison them as much as possible. It has an effect on the birds oddly because blue tits and things that tend to eat those caterpillars get tummy upsets as a result because of the poison the caterpillars have ingested. So it's um, a very varied world. It's not all rosy moral stuff on the one hand. It's equally immoral. Yeah, but some of the caterpillars that eat these toxins have actually got warning colours. And the warning colours in the insect world are like the down football players and the Kilkenny hurlers. <laughs> they are yellow and black or red and black. They're the warning colours. So as a result, things like, say, the, the cinnabar moth, for example, that has an adult, which is red and black, and the caterpillars are black and amber. So the, the, it has the warning on both ones. They feed on ragworth and the poisons and the toxins in the ragworts go into the caterpillars and subsequently go into the, the moths. So those, those moths can fly around during the day going, nya, 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 because they're red. And, you know, that's a warning colour from the insect point of view, which is interesting because red berries, the birds love them, and red insects, like ladybirds, like these red, these red um, caterpillars indeed, and the red moths that I was mentioning there, they're all very toxic and the birds don't touch these living things, whereas they eat the berries. So I wonder how do they know which red bit is which and would they mistake a ladybird for, for a berry? Of course, you wouldn't do it twice. And then you have creatures that mimic these warnings. And that You take the coverfly, for instance, pretends to be a wasp and fools most things. It isn't a wasp and it doesn't have a sting. But by assuming the apparel of a wasp, it's able to fool the opposition. That's right, it has no sting. In fact, it's loads of things that are black and yellow looking like bees and wasps. You have your hoverflies, there's bee moths that are actually moths and they look like bees. They're amazing looking things and these again have these colours that wasp pyjamas, as I'd like to say, but they don't have any stings. But, you know, Richard and Derek... The birds don't listen to our programme, so they don't know that these things are quite safe to eat, really. No, I disagree. I think they do listen. Everybody (laughs) listens. Everything (laughs) listens. And in fact, if we needed proof, I can tell you that the Mooney Goes Wild podcast is number one on the Apple podcast chart for nature in Ireland. And very often every week in the top 20 slots, we certainly dominate, let's say. I don't mean that in a kind of boasting way. It's just, it happens to be... Go on, you do, of course. No, no, the (laughs) listeners like what we're putting out. So, to encourage you to visit our website and do some reading as well as listening, Terry Flanagan said, why don't we go into the archive and recycle some of the wonderful articles written by our contributors over the years. We're going to do that and Terry's going to tell you all about it now. If you go to our website after tonight's programme, rte.ie forward slash Moody and click on Nature Notes, you'll be able to read articles written by our expert panel, Terry. Well, Derek, I think you've, you've said it all there yourself. Um, going back over the last 10 years or so, myself, Richard, Aina, Nile, and lots of other contributors, Eric Dempsey, uh, we all wrote articles which we put up on the website, interesting articles, maybe a thousand, two thousand words, and they've got people thinking about wildlife and nature. And so what we've done is we've resurrected them and we're now putting them back up on the website again. And hopefully people will get to see them, will look at them and will we'll, we'll glean something from them. OK, so start with something you've written about. Well, the first article that's up there tonight from me is why should we eat insects? 
We don't eat insects, certainly not in Ireland. We don't eat insects. We don't eat them in, consciously at any rate. Well, that, that's true. But do you know that there are eight billion people on Earth and more than one billion of those eight are undernourished. I mean, we need more food to feed people. And insects, they're the most diverse group of animals on Earth. We know of at least one million one million species of insects and there are millions more that have yet to be identified and that have to be named. And that for every human on Earth, this was a statistic that blew me away years ago, for every human on Earth, there are more than one billion insects. One billion insects. The total weight of all the insects on Earth is about 70 times the weight of all humans on Earth. So... No, they're there. They're full of protein. And it's not as if we're not eating them. In more than 130 countries around the world, people are deliberately eating insects. More than 2 billion people are deliberately eating insects all the time. And it's going back thousands and thousands of years ago. You remember in, in, in the desert, John the Baptist, when he crossed the desert, he fed on locusts and, and wild honey. And wild honey. And there are over 2,000 species of insects that are edible. And I don't know, Derek, if you've ever been to Thailand. No, I haven't. Well, I can tell you, there are 15,000 cricket farms in that country producing crickets purely for human consumption. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that something? And, you know, let's look at the advantages of eating insects. Why do we eat food in the first place? Well, we eat it for nourishment. We eat it for carbohydrates and proteins and fats and vitamins and so on. Well, they're very, very, insects are very, very high in protein. If we take, for instance, a hamburger, a hamburger has 18% protein and 18% fat. But a cooked grasshopper has <laughs> 60% protein. There you go, that's 60% protein and only 6% fat. And the fat, guess what, is unsaturated fat. It's the good fat, like the fat. What's we have. the grasshopper feeding on? The grasshopper is feeding on grass and okay. it's feeding on the plant. The clue material. is in the name. No, I'm only asking. <laughs> come on, come on. Well, oh, what does the mosquito feed on? On moss. Come on, Ian. <laughs> well, insect farming, too, it's also much more efficient than, say, is cattle farming. It takes 45 grams of feed to produce four and a half kilograms of beef and the same amount of feed produces 20 kilograms of crickets it also reduces greenhouse gas emissions they can be raised in huge numbers in very very small areas there's much less pollution produced and there's a huge variety of insects, as I say, that we can, can ah, feed on. Ah, but what do they taste like? Did you have them ever eat any of them, Terry? But we don't get them in Ireland. No, I haven't. Well, 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 why aren't we doing it? Or why are people not eating them? And I think the reason is because we eat with our eyes. Everybody does, I would imagine. Well, yeah. but that's true. You have a lovely steak there and you think, oh, you don't see the cow. You see the lovely red meat, the juicy meat and the, the onion rings and everything else that goes Control with yourself, it. Control yourself, Terry. But what about insects? Well, you feel the crunch. You don't like the look of it. But if you could make it more appetising, in other words, grind it down maybe or coat it in chocolate, something like that, well, then maybe we would eat them. I think traditionally insects have been seen as destroyers of crops and our avoidance of insects is more cultural than biological. But I think in the future we may change. OK, we may do. Now, Aina, you have an article appearing on tonight's website also. Yes, yes, Derek, I have a, a chosen a very timely topic to reissue and it's hibernation, how animals and get through the winter. And of course, it's animals at our latitude that hibernate, I point out. If you're at, up in the Arctic regions, if you go asleep, you'll never wake up again because it's so cold you'd freeze. Mm -hmm. So even though people say polar bears hibernate, they actually don't. They go into their caves, they stay awake, the females feed their young in under the ice and don't emerge for three months starving and the males are out on the ice floes trying to get food. And down in the tropics, you don't need to hibernate. So it's at our latitudes that, that animals hibernate. And then I, I talk about this and how it happens. It's not just going to sleep and could we hibernate? Some days you think it would be a good idea but it's a whole physiological process you have to drop your temperature you have to drop your metabolic rate all of that kind of thing so it's a way of getting through the winter I mean birds can migrate if they can't get their food and omnivores can change their diet and if there's no insects for them to eat they can eat berries they can eat vegetable, vegetable material they, they, they have a choice but the, the, the animals like say hedgehogs and bats they, they can't do this so they, they hibernate and of course squirrels don't hibernate because they have as we have been talking they have they save up 
up the various hazelnuts or the acorns and they have food in the they winter. They have a little stash. Why would you be gathered nuts in September if you're going to be asleep for four months? They're not bonkers. I mean, this is this is nonsense. But people still think that squirrels hibernate and they don't. And then, of course, frogs hibernate as well too. They're at the bottoms of ponds. Did you ever think, Derek, how come they don't drown? No, I didn't ever think about that. Either. Go on, but there you tell go. us. Well, I mean, there they are. They have lungs. I mean, if you ever see a frog, it's going out and in, out and in. They don't even have ribs. So you can really see their chest going in and out. And then they're down at the bottom of a pond, you know, less and less. But the males the males hibernate down at the bottom of a pond two, three months. You can't hold your breath for that length of time. How come they don't drown? And the thing is, they don't have gills. People say, oh, they have gills. Well, they haven't gills. Tadpoles have gills, but they're long gone by the time you get to be a frog. And they don't take water into their lungs or they would drown, they actually get oxygen directly through their skin. And that's how they manage. Now, they don't get a huge amount, but they get enough to keep them going. And that's how they manage to survive the winter. Because the heart rate drops so low. Yeah, well, they only need a certain amount of energy, Mm. but they do need some oxygen to keep the brain going. But they get it through their skin. So there's a queer one for you now. There's a queer one for you. So you can read about that. And as Richard was talking about berries and birds earlier, Richard, you have written about berries and birds. Indeed I have. I will dig out that article and I will kick it on to you. It's about 11 years since I, I wrote that stuff up I think and so and it's all about unity the way birds animals plants uh, trees all interrelate to each other the checks and balances the good things about relationships the downside of the relationships it's a very interesting you do the more you look at nature it's less a question of individual species frogs and toads and squirrels it's much more holistic. It's much more an entire system. There is one great nature, all interlinking in all sorts of ways. Well, you can read all about it, as the old cry used to go, and it's on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. And just click on the Nature Notes section. Now, Niall Hatch, you've eaten insects, haven't you? I have, Derek. And um, while that might be a bit of an acquired taste, I can definitely see the merit in eating them. Mm. You're you're talking there about in Thailand, how they have the crickets and grasshoppers and they're commercially farmed and they sell them the night markets there. And I remember going through some of those night markets when I was in Bangkok. And they've all sorts of other creepy crawlies there. I've seen them in China as well. So you can get things like um, scorpions and spiders. Okay, not insects, but kind of in the same sort of way. And are people eating the scorpions and spiders as well? Uh, Yes. And I've tried tried scorpion. I have to say, didn't like it. It was something very, I mean, it is, it's hard to get over that disgust factor it really is there's just something very unpleasant about it, it didn't, honestly didn't taste that good however in Thailand with the grasshoppers they're sort of deep fried and they put this sort of spicy coating on them you know, food in Thailand is delicious and I got different types and I was later back in the hotel watching TV and I just realised I was eating them like crisps and actually they were absolutely fine there's no harm in eating them at all I thought it was actually surprisingly good so they're like pleasant. little maybe maybe they might look like tiny little shrimps you know the way if you have deep fried shrimps you eat those and they taste grand so presumably a big insect dipped in batter and fried wouldn't be much different if you didn't know what it was. It is, it is very arbitrary what we eat and what we don't eat. Um, so you talk about, about shrimps and lobsters and so on. These crustaceans, people like those, but yet no one would think of eating wood lice and apparently they taste very similar. Oh. Now, <laughs> now, now don't go <laughs> eating wood lice at home. No, don't go eat them at home don't. because you, you, don't, you don't know where they've been just, or where they came you from. Just, don't just randomly start eating, no, eating insects Ab- either just absolutely for the record. Not. Because there's still a lot of work to be done about you know what exactly is edible, what's not. What's uh, in them? Yeah. No, no, but the thing is that your insect could be feeding on something that's poisonous to you. I yes. mean, we can eat the garden snails in our gardens, but would you? Maybe it was eating ivy, and ivy is poisonous to us. Just to say to anyone listening, if you get the chance to try properly cooked, prepared grasshoppers from a reputable supplier, if you're abroad or if they ever come into Ireland, go for it. They're actually nowhere near as bad as you would think. I would say they're actively nice. I would have them again. I can't see it catching on here. <laughs> but anyway, look, it's, it's an old story. That's what I mean, people have been talking about this for years on radio and on TV. Yeah. But what we're doing is we're going into the archive and looking back at articles that were written many years ago, just to kind of give you something to to read anyway. That's, that's what Gay Byrne said about Ballygown Water famously on the Late Late I Show. I remember it, yeah. I can't see it I catching, on, it here. catching on I remember watching that night and the guy coming in with the water and, and no one's going to buy and, and we've bottles of water in here. Other, down, yeah, other products are available, let me just uh, state that. Anyway, thank you very much indeed. Now we have a lovely report from Michelle Brown now. She visited the Marymount Hospital and Hospice in Cork recently and what she's looking at there is the gardens and how important nature is to people at this stage of their lives. Inch by inch, row by row Go to make this garden grow All it takes is a rake and a hoe And a piece of fertile ground Inch by inch, row by row 
Someone bless these seeds I sow Someone warm them from below Till the rain comes tumbling down the gardens are fantastic, but people that are suffering because there's something in the... When you're close to the earth, you're close to nature. Nature does speak to you. And we're all too busy, that's what happens. It's only when you get sick and you stop on your tracks that you realise there's a lot more to life, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. Very important. You realise after that that, you know, you have to change. Busy, busy, busy. And all of a sudden, this, when you're too busy, you don't touch in your emotions at all. So like this is where it is. I mean it's a beautiful life. It is a beautiful life. That's Betty Penny, mother of Sonia Lynch, who passed away recently in Marymount Hospice in Cork. Sonia had previously worked for many years as a paediatric nurse in the Mercy Hospital, as well as a community nurse for the Mary Keating Foundation. She married John Lynch, who was a beautiful husband, perfect husband. She said he treated her like a princess, which she's very happy about. She has three children. Isaac is 12, Isabel is 15, and Alex is just 18. They're young. They're a lovely family, beautiful family. I couldn't say that fault them. She got sick nine years ago, which was 39. Breast cancer she started off with. She never cribbed, never no. complained much, kept going all the time. A beautiful person in every way. Uh, you know, they were singing her praises, but we could also sing her praises. Ever before she got sick, she had a, a lovely nature, great empathy for people, understanding for people. Too good. Did you ever get a person who was too good? <gasps> Sonia used her experience, including that of undergoing treatment with young children, to assist research at Cork University Hospital. She became the Irish Cancer Society's first ever Public and Patient Involvement Champion of the Year for her contribution. Because of her work, other women will have help during their struggle through illness. Betty is very grateful for the help and support her daughter got from Marymount. The care of the staff here is known about far and wide. Definitely the atmosphere in Marymount is widely remarked upon as being one that's really calm and really supportive. So many people say that people walk into Marymount and their shoulders relax because they know that their loved one will be in great hands. The care of the nurses is definitely like famous. Like the, the nurses are called angels and they just have just a huge capacity for kindness as well that I think makes all the difference here, do you know? That's Enid Conway the fundraising and marketing manager at Marymount. It's all of the staff, honestly now, the maintenance, caretakers, like the people in, in catering, fundraising, marketing, admin, um, as well as the clinical staff. Everyone has such a human touch. There's just a, a, an awareness that the people that come in here are undergoing difficult times or the time that's left is particularly precious and there's a sanctity around that. Shortly after winning gold for Best in Show in the Chelsea Flower Show, Adam Hunt from Urquhart and Hunt Landscape Design and Ecological Restoration and his partner, the garden designer and cork woman, Valerie Keating Bond, were asked by the charity Friends of Leukaemia to further develop the garden on the hospice grounds. A sanctuary of peace for those undergoing the labour of dying and all those tending to them on their final journey. Yeah, we're standing next to a native species hedge here, which is goes up to about four or five metres deep in places, full of birds, you can hear the birds singing, and it's full of squirrels and rabbits, which is a bit of a worry with the plants. And there were two amazing ponds, both of which get frogspawn in them every spring, but they needed a bit of love and care and then so we've built our two gardens around those haven't yeah. we you see and the thing is you're looking at now the balconies and they're full of plants and so the, the patients you have patients that might be here very briefly and then you have patients who are here much longer and as you walk around the site you see how, how horticulture is actually so important at this stage um, there's little gardens everywhere and people who have their own terrace are encouraged and they just naturally make it very beautiful I know one patient planted hundreds of daffodils. Um, as you can see even walking down here they use like shrubs and uh, there's an awful lot of greenery you know they've yeah. really done it very well um, and some we try to put it in our new areas to work as much possibly with the old areas. I think everyone here agreed with what Val and I were trying to say which was we've got incredible biodiversity here let's enhance it and so that 
what we've tried to create is a nature walk around the grounds because a lot of the people that come here they're in a very stressful situation they have a loved one in the hospital who may or may not be in a very good state at all and they to come out and actually be able to sit in a garden next to a pond one of the things that you see in these ponds in the spring is a lot of swallows diving and drinking off water off the surface and picking up mud and a lot of the residents of the hospice really enjoy seeing those swallows flying around the building. And people don't realise this, but to have swallows you need to have water because they make their nests from mud. So you only get swallows where there's an easy source of water. And if we got rid of the ponds, there wouldn't be any swallows here. <gasps> look! Oh, that heron's look, coming heron. in. Do you go? Thank you, looking. Here's the heron. He flew over me. That just makes it all for me now, like. Yeah. He flew over me a couple of weeks back and dropped a frog. So I took the frog and put it back in the pond. <laughs> He's up on the roof now. <laughs> giving us the eyes, saying, what are you doing here? <laughs> Betty is Valerie's aunt, and Valerie was working on the landscape while Sonia was here last August. Valerie had been working, so it is a small world when you think of it. Did we ever think we'd end up out here? You know, we didn't. I asked Betty if the gardens at Marymount gave them comfort. Yes, she, they did, definitely did. Myself and Sonia were looking out at the rabbits. There was five rabbits at one stage and we were watching them for a good half an hour, watching the way they were moving around and jumping around. It was beautiful. I mean, like the robins, which stood out to us, they were behind our backs mm. and they'll always say a robin only comes where there's peace and they were on, jumping on the chair behind us. Mm. So it, it was beautiful. We went out in the garden a few times and she loved it. Mm. Mm. Sometimes, what Adam and Valerie have done is so subtle you wouldn't even see it until it was pointed out to you. Like the native brambly hedges that will attract birds because that is where they nest as they feel safe from predators. Or the hibernaculum built into the borders next to the pond for frogs to climb into and hibernate over winter. And other things, as Adam points out, at the arrival garden by the entrance to the hospice. We've restored the pond, we've put in a, a nice beach hedge and then we've got this curved stone wall. It's a West Cork sandstone with a clear coping stone on top. Lovely thick grey finish that people can sit on, but there'll also be two seats. And then we've got this naturalistic planting and these big boulders, which is this kind of green quartz. And what we're hoping is that people will be able to come out here and have somewhere to sit. And talk me through some of the plants that you have. Well, we've put in a mix of, of grasses, flowers, we've got things like an ornamental sea holly, we've got uh, autumn flowering grasses, uh, we've got buddleia, we've got buttercup hazel, an ornamental apple, viburnum, ornamental wood spurge. There's a lovely range. We've got irises, we've got tulips, we've got daffodils. Yeah, there's a lot in here. <laughs> so you like buddleia? The insects like buddleia. That's why we put it in. And Valerie's really keen on Buddleia, so we've got a, a, quite a nice range of Buddleia in here. And you all see it. It's so worth having in the garden. But what we also try to do is we try to plant forage plants for butterfly caterpillars because when they feed as adults, they're quite generalist. But when they're in their caterpillar stage, they're very specific. So a lot of the fritillary butterflies like violets and they're really important as a food source. And peacock butterflies and tortoise shells love nettles so a lot of butterflies on a buddleia you'd see peacock butterflies tortoise shells commas large and small whites you'd probably also maybe see a holly blue i don't think a garden would be a garden without wildlife in it really and that's my view i mean in in my own garden, I've taken it to quite an extreme and now I'm trying to reclaim the garden back a little bit. But it's just really interesting to see what insect and bird communities you can have in a garden. And they like complexity, which is another word for untidiness. Now, that's not to say a whole garden has to be untidy, but everything has its place. And so there's been a lot of success with this no-mo-may campaign and you're seeing that local authorities are starting to plant a lot more wildflower meadows I mean, it saves some money because they don't have to mow it every week but also the nature responds to complexity it responds to more diverse habitats and for me what would a garden be without birdsong and butterflies and insects and hummer bees what would it be
Valerie and Adam aren't the only ones in Cork with Chelsea gold medal experience. I also met contract landscaper Cullum Cronin. Nice to meet you, Michelle. Michelle, how are you keeping? Good. Uh, you, are you Corkman as well? I am, down from Ventry. Yeah, uh, very yeah. talented, I hear. I don't know. We're, yes, yes, yes. We're, we're, we're kind of fake it, I suppose, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we're letting it on, like, you yeah. know. Tell me, Colin, what, what are you doing here? Um, I suppose I'm doing the, the landscaping, doing the general work, um, or organising anyway, and doing it with the lads here. Valerie and Adam came up with the, the design, and I suppose we built the garden, and um, we've planted it out there over the last couple of weeks. So the planting is finished today. Final thing, the bulbs have been all stuck in the ground, and can't wait till spring now to see them pop out and see what kind of a colour it is. I hear you worked with Chelsea Gardens before, did you? I did. I suppose I was over in 2010 with Dermot Gavin, and I worked with him there for a week in the planting of that garden, which ended up inside in Fitzgerald's Park afterwards. And then 20 years ago, I suppose, I went over with Future Forest, and they did a Mary Reynolds garden. So they planted up there. She won gold as well. Okay, so veteran gold. Well, you know, I've, I've just been maybe been very lucky. The two times I've been there, there's been gold. So... <laughs> And then I came, made up with Adam and there's gold with him as well. So <laughs> it's either me or them, I'm not sure. <laughs> Tell me, um, what do you like about the garden here at Marymount? I suppose it's different to a lot of things I've been involved in before. For one thing, from kind of a maintenance point of view, and the other thing of what the, the colour it will bring, and the whole thing of biodiversity, especially with the ponds. There were two kind of semi-derelict ponds. And we did a lot of clearing out and replanting in those and fenced them off. And now I think they're kind of the highlight of the the whole scheme so like in general that kind of thing it's nice because a lot of the time I suppose today we're dealing with very modern type and contemporary gardens and this is kind of a, a throwback or a step back to I think to kind of the way that we need to be going. And uh, Marymount is kind of special to people in Cork and Munster I suppose as well isn't it? Oh very much so I think like from you know we meet people here from all from West Cork you know there's people we met there one day from Clare, Tipperary, Kerry, down to Waterford so I think it has it is a great name you know, and I suppose it's nice to be associated with something like this and to give back, you know, so that they can enjoy it because I know that people looking out the windows there, you know, people that aren't well, maybe the garden outside gives them, you know, it just gives them a lift on a day that they, they, they might need it. Does it give you a lift in the day? Oh, it does. Well, all, all types of mucky about in the garden does. I think, you know, every day is different. You know, wake up every morning, you know, as bad as the night may have been and the weather we've got while we're doing this, but, you know, the whole thing, you come here every day, there's a change and... You know, I suppose that's the one thing about gardening and the likes of this as well. There's, there's something changing every day and I suppose the expectation of what's to come as well, you know, in the spring and the summer of next year. Every time we stick the spade in the ground, we plant something, you know, we hope it will grow. And in fairness, plants, you know, if you give them any bit of care at all, they, they really want to grow. Like You throw an acorn on the top of the ground there and just in time it'll be an oak tree and we hope for the same here. And I think, um, if not hope, it can give you some kind of solace or some kind of, you know, peace. Uh, definitely I think here you know the whole team here is that there's somewhere to actually sit down and reflect and, and maybe look back at things and, and probably hopefully give the people that will be here that's some bit of solace in, in, you know for the time they're here Valerie and Adam take me down paths wet with November's heavy rain and past the recently bared brown branches of the many many trees they have planted Scots pines and birches bird cherries and field maples all the way down to the Remembrance Garden. So, to give it added rabbit protection, we've created an enclosed space in the Remembrance Garden with fencing and beech trees. And we wanted a Remembrance tree. We planted um, this Acer, multi-stem, and it's, it's old and it's, it's warped and it's, it's perfect. As I said, sometimes the work is so subtle, but some things you will definitely see like their signature tree, an Acer tataricum, which they picked for its lovely form and colour including bright red leaves in autumn and for the fact that it symbolises strength, courage and endurance. Um, and then we enclosed it with um, beech hedging and the pleach, it, its planting is more subtle and calming purples, whites and mauves and lilacs, things like that so, and, and some, some roses well. and some roses yeah. and different I mean perennials that we might not be particularly aware of in Ireland you know we've really experimented while keeping it elegant and calming okay. and it's right next to this beautiful pond which um, I love so 
Will we walk around this way? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The grounds are fabulous, aren't they? There's loads they of space. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was draining so badly, there was a load of half-dead orchard trees. Uh, and apple trees are quite, they don't like sitting in, in the wet. So we put in these native trees and we tried to make it more sculptural, if you like. We put these mounds in and we sort of imagine, this was Val's idea, but we, we imagine family sitting on the, on the mounds of grass. They're like little tumulus, we call them in the UK, little burial. I call it Teletubbies, Teletubby land. <laughs> yeah. But even here, you couldn't really walk down here um, much of the year because it was just flooded, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and so access was kind of limited. So here's the fairy fort. And we, we did quite a light touch approach with the wildflower seed, but we were unfortunate um, because we did it quite late in the spring and then it was very dry. And, and so we're giving it another go this autumn. And we brought Paddy Barry in a surveyor because we wanted to have a Celtic spiral so yeah he laid the whole fairy fort out so that the wildflower meadow you know would, would work as a spiral design there'd be yeah there'd be a yeah. mown path all the way into the center wow. which would be cool and so how do you know it's a fairy fort basically it's an old neolithic uh, or iron age fort but it's called a fairy fort and it's archaeologically significant so no one was allowed to dig into it and we're certainly not going to start. Okay. And so when people are looking out their, their windows of um, the hospice here, what will they be seeing? They'll be seeing a wildflower meadow with a spiral going through it. You can walk. So the spiral will be mown grass, mm -hmm. probably like a metre and a half, two metres wide. Mm -hmm. And then the rest will be wildflowers. And what, what makes wildflower meadows look really nice often is that contrast between the mown grass and the wildflowers. You can see that it's intentional. But you can see, even now, you can see we've got buttercups down here and we've got yarrow. And things are taking, but we need more to take. Okay. Marymount has a pastoral care service, providing spiritual, religious and psychological support for people of all faiths and none. Earlier during my visit, there was a mass. As we head back inside, Valerie and Adam tell me they are very aware of the many dimensions to the work they do. Marymount given what it is, a palliative care hospital, will bring you to that place of what is the meaning of life or what is my spiritual belief. You know, it's, if someone's passing, it's you want to feel very safe. And down in the Remembrance Garden, there is a statue of the Virgin Mary, which a patient's family, deceased, um, had put in. And every so often they they send someone down to repaint her. And she's got all her lovely beads and she's she's lovely. And initially when I was down there, I kept thinking that someone was watching me. And now I just love her. I love her. And the, the Remembrance Garden, what you have down there is you have beautiful morning light. Mm. And because it's the Remembrance Garden, I kind of tapped into the significance of, how would you say, kind of a spiritual element of planting. But it's like the, the colour scheme would be so that the light in the morning would catch it and kind of just make it feel eerily beautiful. So yeah, the, the planting palette in that sense is very emotionally regulating and calming, but yet softly delightful as well. So yeah, spirituality would definitely be something t that we have, I would feel, incorporated in here. And there's an awful lot of old folklore with the, with the, the fairy field and mythological stories, you know, regarding the trees that we've used and things like that and, and how things like, like the autumn leaf, how it changes and how it then comes again. So it's kind of about that death and rebirth. Sorry, I'm getting very deep, but it's, it is a place of reflection and it is a time of reflection and gardens to me are, are a wonderful opportunity for you to reconnect with all of that, those questions. If we do our work well, we're storytellers yes. and you know, we're an island, this is a, this is a land of storytellers. But uh, if, it's, it's the way the land speaks to us. And if we, if we listen well, we can tell a story with our gardens and our landscapes. And as Valerie said, there's an extraordinary level of history on the site at Marymount. And it's a very, very special place in Cork. It's very, everyone I speak to, it's dear to around here everyone has a personal relationship with it although I'm not from Cork uh, I really respect that and it, it's a privilege to be involved with it and if we can tell that story that story of the land 
and nature, then we've done our job. Hopefully. I mean, I don't know if I should say this, but like sometimes when I say I'm, I'm working at Marymount, people will say, oh God, I don't want to go near there, you know. There is that mm. kind of connection to it. There's a, you know, in some way, there's a bit of a fear until people have a relationship with, with what's done here and how, how they're all angels and how they're all amazing. And so by making these gardens a beautiful place as well, I think it's a celebration of the lives that come here um, and the visitors that visit so that it's not so frightening. Enid also picks up on this. I think there's a stigma around working in a hospice that it's going to be an incredibly sad place to work. But it, it's really not. It's, it's, kind of, it's more about life than it, it's, than it is about death, really. The ethos of palliative care is all about like making sure that you live the last moments of your life to the fullest and having access to this like incredible garden. It, it's just another factor. And I think that people that come in and out of here are still, you know, curious about nature and ready to be kind of captivated by flora and fauna and insects and everything and to have that kind of little glimmer of magic in their day where maybe they can visit the garden with their loved one. We know from Betty that she certainly benefited from that glimmer of magic, that relief in nature in what she describes as the worst time of her life. However, like her daughter, she is strong and she tells me Sonia's family are doing well and have fundraised in her memory to help build a paediatric ward in Sri Lanka. The family are doing very well. They're quiet, but they're very good and they're coping very well. They're continuing with school, they have their sport. And at the moment, and they're even now at this stage talking to you, there was great support here for them. Uh, there's a great support for them when they need it. And you only realise when you lose your own daughter, how many more people are, are, are going through it. Because you, you just wouldn't realise the impact would have on you. So I think sometimes I feel at the moment, am I too good? But I'm letting it happen. I put on her tapes, her singing tapes, and then I, I go to my grieving. So I'm, I'm walking like that with it. You put on her music? Her music. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she, she was very blessed that she came here really to, towards the end. You know, it definitely did. She had a great, it was beautiful here. Really beautiful. And as you say, look, even the piece here now this minute, isn't it beautiful? And that report by Michelle Brown. Don't forget, you can visit our website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. And just a reminder that our great big garden Birdwatch in association with Birdwatch Ireland will be broadcast live on Monday the 5th of February from 3pm right here on RT Radio 1. And if you're interested, you can tune into the Today Show on Wednesday next. That's in two days' time. I'll be standing in with Maura and I and we'll be telling you more about the Garden Bird Watch then and seeing some of the birds that are coming into Jim Wilson's garden. Jim will be with me and he's going to be one of our guests on the day. So look forward to that on Wednesday. In the meantime, visit the website rte.ie forward slash media. My thanks to Daniel Keating, our broadcast coordinator and our researcher Michelle Brown. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.